Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast brought to you by Softleet. Today we are talking with one of our beloved Softleet employees, Doug Keyswetter. It's reassuring to hear you say that you love me. I do love you, man. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, otherwise you wouldn't put up with all my shit. Right? <laughs> it's all good. Doug's back from Iraq after a six-month deployment, and we're going to be chatting with him today about that and then going off on a bunch of different random tangents, and hopefully you'll find them interesting. So join us for an interesting hour to hear about what's going on in Iraq and how you can make yourself better. Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. First of all, super good to be back. Um, I'm going to have a rage blackout if one more person thanks me for my service and is like, oh, welcome home from Iraq. I'm have like, you been getting that a lot? Uh, like all the time. In I fact, feel like the thank you for your service thing is, is... No, I mean, we joke about it, but it happens all the time. Like I went, I I had to wear a uniform. Like <clears throat> I don't I don't wear a uniform very often. It's not a surprise, I guess, to anyone who knows me. Mm -hmm. um, but I had to wear a uniform for the demobilization. So my full-time job is here at Softweet, but... I still play Army with 20th Special Forces Group, which is a National Guard Special Forces Group. Um, it is a great time. It's a great way to maintain your qualifications. And I personally think that it is a very professional organization full of guys that are, you know, the finest. They, they bear the finest attributes of the Special Forces Regiment. So in, I guess... January of last year, mm -hmm. it came down the pipeline that I was due for another deployment and Iraq was in the books. So I was like, yeah, man, I'll go back to Iraq. Last time I was there was 2011. Um, I had, a, I had an interesting experience during the deployment. Uh, it was when we were shutting the war down. So much less kinetic, uh, operation type stuff and much more logistical concerns shutting down a, a war. Uh, it was a good experience, but Definitely an eye-opening one. Um, needless to say, Iraq in 2018 uh, was was also a new and eye-opening experience. Uh, I bet, we, man. We, we, it's worth noting that I think that everyone sees special forces as this ethereal black helicopter uh, group of guys that do secret missions all the time. And the reality is that most of our missions are not secret. Most of our, most of our, activities are conducted what is called white side. So like, uh, there's nothing classified or secret about what we do. Um, you know, there's operational security concerns that, you know, we don't talk about like manning or names or, you know, actual specific timelines of missions. But I mean, my entire deployment to Iraq was essentially, I mean, it might as well have been on a media role because we were under a uh, state department as our authority. So like our actual goal was to magnify the capacity of the Iraqi military through State Department funding. So while we were there as Department of Defense assets, like officially, like we mm -hmm. are still part of the DOD, 
we were really tasked almost exclusively to the Department of State, which obviously the missions of Department of State and DOD, while I guess they're supposed to mesh, are not always identical, right? So we were, as an as a operational detachment alpha, which is what you call a special forces team, we were working uh, at kind of a operational and strategic level. So in <laughs> at risk of sounding trite, if we picture a three-bubble snowman, the bottom bubble, which is what most people think of as special operations missions, is the tactical bubble. The middle bubble is the operational bubble, and then the bubble above that is the strategic bubble. That's like the kind of the levels of operational authority. So we were doing a lot of meetings with generals, uh, a lot of meetings with diplomats. Uh, we were working for a head shed full of colonels and generals that, you know, their primary focus was stabilizing the Iraqi military and um, kind of helping the Iraqi government transition into uh, an organization that is capable of kind of keeping external threats from invading. And so, but... Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. I mean, isn't this part of kind of what the overall, you know, like mission of special forces is that perhaps has, you know, was was kind of lost or partially forgotten by people during, you know, the country being at war in a sense, going back to what you were saying before, you know, not everything is a is a tactical situation. This right? is certainly so, one of our core competencies, but it's also something that very rarely gets exercised at a team level. So, mm-hmm. like, you'll have uh, senior representatives of a team go and be a liaison for this kind of activity, but to task a team to do it is is rare. Usually, a team will be focused more on the tactical. Um, if not kinetic, certainly more like a foreign internal defense mission. So like mm-hmm. actually training soldiers. And, and we fell into some of that as well. Um, the mission in Iraq right now is very multinational. So um, we worked with Czechs, Poles, Norwegians, um, Australians, Brits. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on as far as like the multinational coalition that's there to help the Iraqis. What's, what's driving that? I mean, what's the continued interest from some of those countries on the military level? Is it all revolving around oil or <laughs> is it political stability? I mean, I wish it was a, as simple as being about oil. Uh, I don't, I am not a geopolitical Master, I don't. I don't know. We can pretend like you're one. <laughs> no, I, I will only talk out of my ass, which is something I do pretty well anyway. So right. you know, um, nah, I'm curious about what your thoughts are. I don't think that I, I don't see any real evidence that that there's anyone in the U.S. or coalition government benefiting from the oil revenue of the Iraqi government or the Iraq, the country of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that, like, strategically. There has to be some significance to that place Does that in the have region. To do with Syria and Iran? Um, <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's just say that regionally, there you know there are competing interests regionally. I think that, like many other things that the Western world engages in, um, the coalition's interest in Iraq specifically, but more the Levant as a whole has a lot more to do with a good idea fairy. Like the, I, 
the idea that we opened up a can of worms by deposing Saddam Hussein in a coalition of the willing and then we abandoned Iraq in 2011 when they were still kind of in their fledgling state, which opened up a door, a power vacuum for ISIS to invade. Um, like it or not, I mean, most of the first world had kind of washed their hands of Iraq in 2011 timeframe. Mm -hmm. And then with ISIS invading Iraq, um, kind of spilling over from Syria, uh, I think that the West got a lot more interested in coming back in. Uh, hilariously, I do not get the impression that the Iraqi government was as interested in the West coming in and helping as the West was interested in coming in. Um, I mean, as someone who's, I've, I've been to Afghanistan and Iraq, both like the major theaters in the quote unquote global war on terror. Mm -hmm. And Afghanistan is full of like basically uneducated people um, not basically like almost entirely uneducated people living in rural areas who never really, they don't grasp outside their, their very local sphere. Iraq is not that place. Iraq is a place full of like very well-educated people, super high literacy rate. Uh, people get that their country is in turmoil. They understand that, you know, they could be living a better life somewhere else. People are not unaware of the outside world. They're not unaware of like westernization uh in in combination with modernization um they're they're awesome people they want they want their country to be a peaceful place uh it's just a lot of struggle uh, a lot of i mean it's, it's politics uh and it sometimes has been very violent politics mm -hmm. uh, there's there is a lot of there are a lot of external influencers in iraq right now trying to kind of shape the way forward. And, um, I don't know how, how long the U S will maintain, um, a significant role there. If you can even declare they have one now, um, Iraq is independent. They're doing their own thing and they're shaping their own future. Um, generally speaking, the U S forces that, that were there were there to help, um, to, you know, advise and assist in the, the fight against ISIS. Now that that, that victory has been declared, um, <laughs> most of the U S forces that are there are there in a logistical capacity to, uh, distribute, um, military equipment that was purchased by the Iraqis with Iraqi funds and, um, and then disperse that equipment to their military in a more streamlined method than the Iraqis would do if they just, you know, basically took a shipment of equipment. Uh, it, it was an interesting experience. I've never gone anywhere where I just didn't really do much or, and I was encouraged not to do much. Um, as a special forces guy, I usually have a lot more autonomy so working for State Department was they're they're much more mindful of the secondary and tertiary effects of using a hammer. It's not like everything they see is a nail, right? So like bringing bringing an SF team in, it's understandable that oftentimes an SF team is confused with a hammer, and therefore every problem is a nail, right? So State Department's wary of using special forces guys for diplomatic means because they have an entire like retinue of diplomats. So why do you need military diplomats 
more just as liaisons between the host nation's military and their diplomats. Um, so we, we were split up. We we're in a lot of different locations throughout the country. Um, we, we probably worked we, with local like host nation military more than necessary. I think a lot of it's cause you go back to doing what you know, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, we know how to train uh, partner force. Sure. So typically if, you know, the opportunity presents itself, then we're going to train a partner force. Uh, the big challenge is not getting too involved, understanding that the, the purpose of our involvement is to ensure independent Iraqi military operations without foreign oversight. Um, so we can't just do things for them. We have to teach them how to do things on their own. And I don't even... It's probably the wrong way to put it. It's not that they need to be taught how to do things on their own. I think that sometimes they just need to see how we do things, take notes on how we do it, and then adapt that to a way that works with their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we stepped into a new Iraqi special operations unit um, that was just stood up um, as a result of a very intriguing internal power struggle uh, amongst the Iraqi Ministry of Defense and Ministry of um, CTS, like uh, counterterrorism services. Uh, the new unit is, uh, I, I think we expected the worst. Uh, we walked in, uh, they were reasonably unsupported. Uh, they have a lot of resources allocated, but they just hadn't received them yet. So we, we came up on essentially two battalions out of a three battalion brigade that were in various states of their training with almost no equipment. The first battalion had deployed in the last phases of Mosul, uh, like clearing out the old city and had done really well, but otherwise mostly operationally uh, inexperienced guys that had been sent to this unit to, you know, quote unquote, stand it up. Uh, Most of their training had been dictated by uh, an older schoolhouse, like a commando schoolhouse that was in our location. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in we walked, you know, like the guys before us had been showing up uh, irregularly just because there, was, there wasn't there was a lot of work to do there. And What's the morale like for those guys over there? Are they, <laughs> I don't want to say excited, but are they optimistic about, you know, achieving change or is it kind of... Hey, man, like this is a job. Cautious. cautious. I would say they're cautious. I mean, cautiously optimistic, possibly. Like, I mean, I think when you live that, that inshallah life, like when I, most of the Middle East, like if you ask a really hard question with no answer, you're going to get the inshallah response, just like, yeah, if God wills it. And so, I mean, I think that there is a sense of optimism that comes with inshallah that, you know, like God will only do what is good for for a believer. But I think that, you know, guys are also, they're conscious of the fact that maybe it's gone the other direction for some time. <laughs> right. Um, the guys, I mean, I expected guys that didn't want to work. I expected guys that, that didn't, sh- you know, didn't want to show up. Uh, we put together, we put together the, the bones of a, a pre-selection. So like, you guys had Jared on here the other day, and I think he, he talked about SOPSI, right? Yep. Yeah, so like the special operations preparatory course is something that we kind of put together for this unit. 
uh, just to prep them because they already had a selection program in place. They already had a unit pipeline for mm-hmm. training. So their biggest complaint was that they didn't have the mechanisms to remove anyone that routinely from the from the beginning of this unit, they had had a 100% selection rate, which to us is a giant indicator that there's not an actual selection process going on, <laughs> right? right? Um, like sign your name. Yeah, I mean, they, they were doing things, but I mean, like, I, I would love to show you the the their 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 Hua videos. I, there's no other way to put it. Um, are rad. I mean, like, hey, man, like, here's pictures of or videos of uh, guys biting the heads off chickens and jumping through like flaming hoops of fire. It sounds like an Ozzy Osbourne concert. It was. It was really. It was like someone watched an '80s film like a, from Pakistan on what special operations was all about and then emulated all of those things right. in, in their training. Like, break these boards with your head. Um, you know. Russian special operations YouTube videos. Oh, yeah. so it, was, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Like, we, like there are moments where we're sitting in their theater watching these videos. I'm like, okay, hold up. Rewind it. I want to watch that again. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it was awesome. Hands-free and, flip, throwing the axe. Yeah, super motivated dudes. Uh, but, I mean, for what, right? Like, they didn't... They... They were going and doing training. Um, a lot of their selection pipeline seemed kind of like a, they were going through some motions, mm-hmm. not necessarily doing something productive. So um, we didn't have enough guys to conduct a you know three hundred man class. Uh, just not there's not enough hours in the day amongst our team. So we requested a bunch of Iraqi instructors, mm-hmm. and we ran a um, kind of like a pre-selection, like a cadre training course for them. So we went through an abbreviated version of the three-week preparatory course that we Mm -hmm. put together for a group of lieutenants who I was also skeptical of. (laughs) And uh, to their credit, they did really well. Uh, They sent like 23 guys over, and a couple of them were were not great, but they self-selected those guys and put them into administrative roles where they wouldn't actually have FaceTime with the students, which I thought was really savvy. And then the other guys were super motivated. They were there um, early. They stayed late. They worked on a bunch of extra things. They were very motivated. So when we got done with their pre-selection course, um, like their, their, their cadre training course, we, <laughs> we were kind of cautiously optimistic inshallah, about the direction that the actual full-scale course would go, um, they crushed it. Like, I like I mean, after having worked in the Middle East for a long time, I temper my responses. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it was great for, you know, this subset. But for them, they, they did, I mean, not just for them, they did a great job overall. Those lieutenants requested, they, they wanted to stay to lead the next iterations of the course. They put in 18, 20 hour days of training. Uh, they were professional, they were engaged. Uh, they actually got rid of about 25% of the guys that had been slated to come to their battalion. They were like, nope, they don't belong here. And they sent them off to the needs of the Iraqi military, which is beyond uncommon. Um, most units like, uh, you know, oh, well, if a guy doesn't make it, we're going to send him to, you know, be a truck driver in our unit or a cook or something like that. And just kind of breeds a, an ineffective uh, unit structure overall. But these guys, mm-hmm. um, they were getting rid of like, hey, this cook doesn't want to be here. Let's get rid of him. We'll find one who does. 
I was like, look at you guys, man, doing a, do like being very professional, uh, very involved, hands-on, taking notes, uh, counseling guys individually, holding people accountable. It was good. Uh, it was very rewarding. And the big challenge there is obviously like, hey, don't get too involved, right? Like I can't be out there 18 hours a day. I have to come spot check them, make you know some suggestions, but empower them to understand that this is their own course that they put together. They helped us write and they were capable of doing all on their own. They didn't, yeah. they didn't need us there. Um, that's great, man. I mean, that's the goal, right? Is, I mean, it sounds like overall that's super positive. Um, yeah, I mean, for a brief period of time, bear in mind that was um, that was a total of about five weeks mm-hmm. of of a six month deployment, right. <laughs> and and I mean the rest is I mean in some form or fashion white space. <laughs> All right. Well, so you know, you brought up Jared being on the podcast, uh, and that's something that I also wanted to talk to you about. One of the things that he mentioned when we were chatting was that he felt that there was kind of a a feeling uh, in the Special Forces Regiment of, you know, kind of like, hey, I've made it, uh, you know, feeling that you are, you've, you've kind of like passed the gate or passed the hurdle and now, you know, you can, you can rest on your laurels. I forget the exact, the exact oh, terms. No. I, I know exactly what he said. I know, I know you listened when, to the podcast. When, so. he, when he said that, I was like, Hey man, I'm like right here. I can hear you. Like, like <laughs> stop talking about me. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't disagree with Jared. I think maybe I can. He, he was not holding a sign that said Doug <laughs> while he was saying that. Uh, <clears throat> I, one thing I worked with, a a really squared away dude from third group when I was at the Charlie committee as an instructor. And, uh, the guy would routinely, like guys would get upset about something that a student would say in a, in a, you know, evaluation, but man, they'd be like, fuck that guy. He's a stupid student. And my buddy would always be like, Hey, if the shoe fits, maybe you should wear it. And so routinely when I hear something that like when, when Jared was talking about how like, Oh yeah, a lot of the special forces regiment feels like they've made it. And, you know, that's it. That's enough for them. They just want to coast on what they accomplished that was hard in their, you know, early 20s. And I'm like, oh, I should definitely, like, I should hear that and I should process it and make sure that it doesn't necessarily apply to me. Um, Well, first of all, on a, like, a non-personal thing, I think you need to tilt your microphone down a little bit. Is this better? Other way. Oh, is this better? Yeah. All right. Sorry. Um, maybe even a little bit more. Uh, now so, I'm... There you go. Uh, you can lower the boom. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I just want everyone to be able to hear you, man. All right. All right. So aside from you personally, we can talk more about that because I'm definitely <laughs> definitely interested in doing so. Do you feel that that is a general sentiment or maybe not even a general sentiment, but that there is a a strong enough subset of people in the regiment that have that feeling that it is a a general problem. So I can't speak. That is above my pay grade, Aaron. I can't speak to the regiment as a whole because I'm not exposed to it as a whole. Uh, I gravitate towards uh, people that I view as hardworking, positive people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like I, I don't, I don't know what shitbags in the regiment are thinking or doing (laughs) just because I don't like, I don't spend a lot of time around those guys. Uh, I think my personal opinion is that in any job set where there is a, there's a bar, right? Like, Hey, to get into this job, you have to, 
meet these requirements. I mm-hmm. think there is a tendency to meet those requirements and then lose focus on those requirements. I also think that the base requirements to get into the Special Forces Regiment are challenging as a younger soldier, but as you get older and more acclimatized to that work environment, I mean, it's easy to pass a PT test with a 240. It's easy to do a 12-mile road march at a 15-minute mile pace. As a 30-something-year-old Special Forces guy, like, those are things I don't even have to think about. Like, I don't get stressed out about it. And the question is, like, like Jared was saying, (laughs) is that enough, man? Like, yeah, you can do that drunk or smoking a cigarette or drinking a cup of coffee, but, like, are you content? with maintaining that level of performance, is that level of performance good enough? Like if I was to take you and drop you at 8,000 feet elevation in Afghanistan and put a 55 pound pack on your back and tell you you're going to do like 12,000 feet of elevation change over the course of your, your road march, um, can you do that? Can you maintain a 15 minute mile at that pace? And with those, mm-hmm. you know, environmental right conditions. Uh, and, and even more importantly, like, could you do it at a 12 minute mile pace, which, you know, like what if, what if the mission demanded more out of you? Can you give more or are you redlined at the minimum requirements? And I think special forces is unique because we have such a broad mission set that guys get very, um, they get easily distracted. So I have ADD. Uh, it's evident to everyone who knows me because <laughs> I like I hyper focus on certain things until I'm functional or even good above baseline on those things. And other areas of my life that require work, I don't focus on those during that time. And you can tell they start to suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a good SF guy may not be a master of of any specific task but he is well above baseline on a variety of other tasks just because I don't go, I mean, it's easy for me to say I'm a, I'm a guard guy, right? Like I only go in every once in a while, but I've accumulated a lot of active duty time on a team in the last 14 years. And, um, I don't know what I'm going to do when I go in at any given day. I mean, I know there's some base things that I have to do accountability wise, um, physically, but I don't know necessarily day to day what the next, you know, commander's requirements going to be or what the next focus for the regiment is going to be. So while I've been in SF, you know, language has taken a big focus. Uh, physical fitness has been, you know, has been uh, kind of like reinforced at different times by different leadership cells. Like, hey, this is really important to us. Um being good at your your military occupational specialty, whether it be like, as an engineer, a uh, weapons guy, a commo guy, or a medic, isn't about going to your specialty course, graduating with a good GPA, and then moving on. It's about developing hobbies and interests within those scopes of work that maintain uh, and, and increase your knowledge, right? So like Brian... Uh, Heesky, a great dude. He's our commo guy here at Softweed. He knows more than any like regular graduate of the 18 Echo course could possibly know. But if Brian had graduated the course and, you know, been like, well, that's enough, he would not be able to do 90% of the things he does here at Softweed, right? Sure. Like he's, he's developed an interest. He's also really good at uh, self teaching. 
I mean, so I think that self-starting is very important. So when when Jared's talking, like to get back on point ADD mm-hmm. style, <laughs> when he's talking about how like he feels like a lot of guys within the regiment have have hit a oh you know they they're happy resting on their laurels like. Well, that was one side of it. The other side of it was a feeling of entitlement. Oh, def- definitely. I mean, I get it. I so let me think how to put this. I think that different people gravitate towards being good at different jobs. Sure. And I don't think that to be in Jared's position, you 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 can't be good at being an SF guy. I don't think they're mutually exclusive whatsoever. I think they require different focuses. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that necessarily it's, I mean, I don't think you have to step up to a special mission unit to like that progression is great for guys, but I don't think it's necessary for fulfillment. Right. So oh, like, sure. In fact, I, you know, when we were talking about that, um, I didn't want to derail the conversation, no, go ahead. but, uh, you know, a friend of mine that, that you also know, um, you know, like years ago we were talking and he was, he was essentially bouncing off of me like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I've been recruited to go to spec, you know, special mission unit selection. Um, he's a very religious guy and, you know, very devout Christian. And ultimately he was like, I'm really curious if, I'm curious to know if I have what it takes to do that job or to be selected, I guess, more than to do the job. However, because of my personal beliefs, like I don't think I could actually go do the job that the special mission unit is doing and really be okay with myself and, you know, and my relationship with God, if that's the right way to put it. Um, Because I feel like in special forces, I am in a job where... I have the ability to go somewhere and actually like help people improve their lives. And if I could go do this other thing, my job's really going to be like to shoot people in the face. And I don't think that I can like my relationship with God would allow me to do a job that is focused essentially on killing. Which is interesting Um, because I feel like you run into quite a few very religious guys over on that side of the fence. Yeah, I don't, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've never been there, yeah. so I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm no, just, neither, I'm speaking. Neither have I. I just I'm, live in a town where a lot of them live. <laughs> yeah, I'm just speaking, and certainly with people that are religious, um, you know, their feelings about religiosity and, and their relationship with, uh, you know, with God yeah. is is obviously individual to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, the reason I brought it up is that, to kind of answer your point, I think they're, I'm sure there are other people whose feeling is, hey, like this is the job that I want to do. My feeling of fulfillment is going to come from doing this and not necessarily seeing, you know, again, to use that analogy, like how high up the ladder I can Well, go. it's how we deal with it, right? Like I don't think that by the time you get through special forces assessment selection and you go to an ODA and you're working as an SF guy, like you don't lose the hunger to go do something more. Mm-hmm. I think the question is, like, how do you process your your own, like, what's important to you? Uh, how do you process, like, what you really want out of life? I think that within the military especially, especially in soft, we cultivate this attitude where, like, it's never enough, right? It, I, I think of it as the you ain't done shit mentality. So, like, uh, graduate the Q course, come to an ODA. You ain't done shit. You got to prove yourself 
on the team, right? Go, go to halo school. Uh, you still haven't done shit. You don't have, you know, 500 plus jumps, go to dive school. You ain't done shit. Cause you ain't gone to dive soup. You know, you're like the list goes on and on. There's, you never are going to attain a level of schools or education or accomplishment that is going to make your peers look at you or, or you, you won't be able to look at yourself in the mirror and feel like you're accomplished. You're always looking to like the next ridge line. Like what's next? What's mm -hmm. next? Like guys don't take time to appreciate where they are usually because they're so focused on like the next 25 meter target that like they might have all alphas and have just totally had a major life win, but they're already transitioning to the next target and they don't take any time to appreciate like, wow, that was really, it was a really good shot, you know? Yeah. No, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to, to Brent the other day. Well, this wasn't that recent, but probably a few months ago talking about that exact same thing. And he was like, man, you know, I was like talking to this friend of mine and he was, I think he was relating it to the Marine Corps, but basically, you know, he's like, when I was in recon, it was like, man, like the Marsoc guys, like are so much cooler than we are. And then when I was a Marsoc guy, I was like, man, like the special mission unit guys are so much cooler than we are. And then when I was a special mission unit guy, I was like, man, the ground branch guys are really the dudes that are doing the cool shit. And then when I was a ground branch guy, I was like, man, those two super secret guys like Tom and Bill, those guys are really the fucking cool guys. And then I became Tom and I was like, man, Bill's so much cooler than I am. <laughs> and it's like, it never fucking, no, it never ends, it never ends right? And I mean, like, <clears throat> I, I don't think that, I don't think that's, I don't think that's, um, particular to the special operations community. It's just very visible in no, the fact I, that I we have it's, schools. It's human nature. Yeah. We, we know? always see the grass as greener on the other side, right? Like, it's like, yep. like be married, man. Like it is cool to be married. And if you are lucky enough to have an awesome wife, like I am, like you should be happy with that. But that doesn't change the fact that occasionally you're like, man, I am sick of her shit. And that other chick looks way cooler, smarter, et well, cetera. And that's why you have guys like Hugh Grant that are married to Elizabeth Hurley, you know, like <laughs> fucking picking up like toothless fucking methed out call girls. Well, right? I mean, it is a so, little weird that Elizabeth Hurley has her 15 year old son taking like nude photos of herself. So I, I'm, I'm not up on that. That could but, be a two way street. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, yeah, man. I mean, I, like everybody's looking to the next gate and I get that. I think that, I, I think that while Jared's correct, that there's, there are guys within the regiment who are, I mean, they've let themselves go. They've gotten, gotten fat. They aren't working on their core competencies anymore. They're depressed because they don't feel like they're pursuing their quote unquote dream. But I mean, they haven't done the self work to understand what their dream is or how to accomplish it. So like, these are guys that they don't have a sense of themselves. They have invested in an identity that they're no longer contributing to. Right. So like in their mind, the only thing that they do that's worthwhile is being a special forces soldier, but they're really not doing that very well either, which is what is this like downward spiral of self-medication drinking too much, you know, uh, risk-taking behaviors, things like that, that, that aren't necessary. They're just coping mechanisms. And right. I think that as long as you're, it, it's, it gets interesting because as long as you're on an upward trajectory, as long as you're making progress and pursuing the next gate or moving, you know, up the ladder, mm -hmm. then you see what you're doing is successful and worth the investment. But those guys are the ones that if they have a single failure, 
like if there is a single point of failure in their career, they have a very hard time recovering from it because they're so invested in how their professional career is who they are as a person. And so like a big breakthrough that I had was, you know, accepting I'm a national guard soldier and 20th group. And that like, I love being a special forces guy. Uh, I love the relationship building aspect. I love my job as an engineer, my job as a weapon sergeant. Uh, I love the guys that I'm around. I love all of those things and I'm happy where I am. And I don't think that that means that I don't want to be better. I do. Uh, I spent a lot of time shooting, come in here, you know, try to do good things at softly and be a good representative of the regiment. Um, and, and, you know, I still want to deploy and do good things with my peers, but I don't think I need to reach another rung on the ladder to be happy. I spend a lot of my time now doing self work, you know, like, Hey, like, who am I? Like, I'm not, I'm not an SF guy. I mean, I am, but that's not what defines me. Um, right. I, I take a lot of enjoyment out of being involved with my kids. I take a lot of enjoyment out of like trying to discover what it is that makes me tick that, you know, finding satisfaction, finding peace in the things that I'm doing. Um, and I think that when you make that transition, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, you're going to do better at it and it doesn't matter where you are. You're going to be happy. Yeah. Well, I think the, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is what is, what is, you know, the motivation behind your actions? What is the driving force? And if the driving force is to get better only because of a keeping up with the Joneses or like, I want to be better than Doug. I want to be better than that guy rather than I just want to be, I, you know, for myself, I want to be better Then you're destined for constant failure because there's always going to be, you know, you're going to jump the fence to the other side and there's like another side of that yard with, you know, well, yeah, check even it. greener grass. Like it doesn't matter how so, good you are. You step, you step it up into a new community. I think that Jared talked about how, at his basic training, he was surrounded by, you know, split option kids, regular infantry guys, mm -hmm. uh, 11 Charlies, like the, the mortar men, you know, like, yeah. it's like, I'm around a bunch of kids who have double digit GT, like double digit ASVAB scores, possibly double digit IQs. And I feel left out. I feel like an outsider. I'm like, what did I do? I totally sympathize with them because I'm like, that was my basic training too. I didn't went to basic training with a bunch of split well, options. We also talked about the 18 x-ray kids. But they weren't in his platoon. Right. He's like, when he made the transition to the next schoolyard and he's surrounded by 18 x-rays, I mean, even kids that are failing out, and a lot of them did, were still a really good peer group. And the relationships and friendships that were forged there, like he's getting our friends before we joined the army. But we were like casual acquaintances. Mm -hmm. And when he was going through the pipeline ahead of me and I was right behind him, like our friendship continually forged stronger and stronger as we passed mutual hurdles. And we sure. both started to see like, you know, shared suffering is a real thing. And if you made this cut, clearly you've, you know, you've, you've earned your place at a table because you watched 85% of the other kids not make it, right? So like the quality of the group, your peer subset gets better every time you get accepted into a, you know, a, a higher yard or whatever, like I'm going to, sure. I'm going to move up. And so like you can think I am King shit 
of the special forces regiment. Like, look at me. Like I scored 375 on my PT test and like my, my, my UBR score is ridiculous. And you know, I can bench press 225, 37 times. Like nobody in the NFL combine has anything on me. And then you move up to a new unit, like a, a higher tiered organization. And it's like, oh shit, like I am a low middle performer. <laughs> like, how does that make you feel? How are you going to adapt? Do you, are you pushing harder to beat these other guys or are you pushing harder because you realize like you have more potential that's untapped or are you comfortable saying like, I'm really like, I'm performing at what is a good level for me. What are other areas that I can work on to be more valuable to the institution? Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, that leads to kind of the inevitable question of, so what are the, you know, what are the other areas, man? What are the areas for you that you are looking at next to focus on for self-improvement? Um, <laughs> I am constantly reminded, like, I think that the softweight teams are a good like, object lesson, right? Where it's like, when you're getting good at one thing, you're obviously suffering at another. Like I spent a lot of time on this deployment running because I realized I was slow and fat and I wanted to get back into kind of like a, a more overall fit state. Uh, I wasn't running. I, I followed the programming, but I did a strength team cycle to begin with just to kind of get back into that. And I was running like a couple times a week because of the programming <clears throat> And then I switched to a stamina cycle, uh, which was a Phoenix team, and I hated it. It was just, I was, it was nothing I was good at. Every day was hard, like just going in and learning new movements, doing things that just made me feel super foolish. And I'm sure they looked even more foolish while I was doing them. And I was running three times a week, sometimes more, depending a lot of oxidative work, things like that. Um, I met all my stamina goals for the deployment. But I switched back into a strength-based cycle towards the end. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, man, like even though I maintained good strength numbers, I still lost raw strength. Like my squat didn't feel the same. My deadlifts were a struggle. Um, maybe not a struggle, but they just I didn't go in there feeling like, you know, an unchained bull. <laughs> and so it's like you work on one thing and another thing suffers. I mean there's a lot of things that we want to be good at that are very perishable. Mm -hmm. So for me coming back from this deployment, as far as like softly goes, I have to really focus on organizational things. Um, we're going to be doing some really big stuff here at the company and you guys have put a lot of trust in me as far as doing things I've never done before. Don't fuck it up. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> Hey, I've never <laughs> done this before, but Hey, luckily none of us have done it before. So all we can do is point to people who've been successful outside of our organization. Be like, Doug, why aren't you more like that guy? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to suck our own dicks here for a second and say that I think one of the things that I really value about the culture that we've built here is the fact that we look at a lot of things that people are doing and we ultimately decide, hey, like we could do that ourselves and possibly do it better. And that sounds really almost egotistical. It's not, um, it's not worth doing if we're not doing it better. Like, right. I mean, there's no, 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 no. nobody, I, nobody in this company ever was like, hey, look at that thing somebody else is doing. Let's do it, but worse. Well, I think a lot of it has actually been born out of necessity uh, as a startup culture with limited funds. You know, it's like, Hey, I could pay this guy, you know, X amount of dollars or this organization X amount of dollars to do something for me. 
or we could learn how to do it ourselves, possibly doing it, do it better because we give a shit. Oh, is this, is this like when and I'm in Iraq and you call me to tell me that I need to learn internet coding so that I can move content from one platform to another? I didn't call <laughs> you to tell you that. Um, I didn't say you need to learn. I don't even know what internet coding is. Neither do I. That's why but, it was so awesome. Right. <laughs> but hey, uh, Doug, I'm going to use this name of a code that I don't understand and you don't understand, but it's way simple. Trust me. Our, if I say it, I sound really smart. Yeah, and then our, you'll have to figure it out. Our web developer told me it was really easy. So clearly it has to be. Markdown? Yeah, Markdown. Yeah. Hey. I know you'll figure it out, man. Of course. You know, <laughs> now that you're back, it'll be way easier. You were blaming it on a slow internet connection. Oh, my God. It, that's a good thing. Hey, finding out that your internet connection at your house in North Carolina is actually slower than your internet connection in Iraq is shocking. Wow. Well, you're moving to a new place soon. So. Yeah, trying to video chat with my wife, and uh, she's like, you just, I keep losing you. I'm like, yeah, I have a terrible connection. She, she's like, oh, I forgot to turn the Wi-Fi on, and now I can talk to you. I'm like, wait, so the cellular connection on your phone is better than the Wi-Fi at our house? She's like, right. yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. So, well, it'll be over soon. Oh, yeah, I did. But, uh, yeah, man, I think we have... Just, again, out of necessity, we've had to learn how to do shit on our own. Um, and a lot of that comes down to, just kind of link it back to what we were talking about before, a lot of that comes to looking at what are the ways that other people do things and evaluating what you see other people doing and doing it from as objective of a standpoint as possible. So not like, oh, that guy's doing that fucked up and I'm going to fucking talk trash about him. Or envious, wow, those guys are amazing. I need to do exactly what they're doing because they're the greatest in the world. Really kind of looking at it, hey, I want to do this better for myself, for my organization. What are the good things that these people are doing? What are the bad things that these people are doing? How can I take the good, fix the bad, or adapt it for our culture, which might be different than their culture as an organization? Well, and I think and that we're, we're, we're critical of ourselves in a good way, too. We're like, even when we're performing above our expected level of performance, we're still very critical of our own processes. Like, Hey, is this, is this working as well as it could be working? Right. Sure. Like, I feel like the wolf's always at the door, man. I mean, and I don't know if it is, isn't it? Yeah. No matter how good you're doing, like it could all stop tomorrow. I don't think that feeling will ever get shaken. And that goes back to what you were saying before in terms of no matter how, how king shit you think you are, there's always like a bigger king shit out there somewhere. And, uh, you know, I think Jared talked about when he got to his organization, you know, his 39-year-old team sergeant running circles around him. Yep. And it sounded like, you know, hey, man, like I may, that guy's a gifted athlete. Jared's a, Jared is a stud, too. Right. You know, and I just, I may never be that strong that fast, you know, like no matter how hard I work. Um, I think that... Uh, I knew this kid that was convinced he was going to be a professional baseball player. And, you know, from the time we were really young, was like the star of the traveling league. And, you know. Where, where, the, where is he now? Uh, I don't know what he's doing <laughs> now, but I can tell you he's not playing baseball. And I'll tell you why. Um, and I, I think, you know, as a kid, he was always so far ahead of everyone else. You know, like the, always the all-star player. And no one was ever even close. And he, I think, didn't he didn't want to go to college. He wanted to try and go like you know straight into straight into the minors, straight into the minors. 
And his parents really wanted him to go to college, and they basically made him a deal. It was like, hey, we're going to send you this camp, this, you know, like really expensive kind of like prep camp. Yep. And it's, you know, like a feeder for minor league teams and stuff. And But it's private. You have to pay for it, et cetera. And, you know, if you do really well there and you decide you still want to go, then, you know, you can, whatever, it's your life. Um, but if not, you know, maybe it'll be an eye-opening experience. And either way, you, you know, we want you to apply to, to college. Was he a pitcher? Like a he was a pitcher. <sighs> and uh, anyway. Go on. <laughs> I was not really good friends with this guy, but I knew him. He comes back from the camp, and it was... He was a changed person, man, because he got to a place that was pulling from all over the country rather than, you know, like all over the suburban, you know, Chicago area. And all of a sudden, all the kids that were there were on his level or better. And he went from being absolutely by far the best player, you know, every ever since he was a little kid, you know, for over a decade. He had, he had been the best, hands yep. down. And now he goes to a place where he was like, eh, like bottom bottom third of the pack. And that was... Did that crush his psyche? Um, you know, I think it would be foolish to say that that did not leave some kind of mark on him. However, and he did decide to go to college. I think it was kind of a... Clearly an eye-opening experience for him. I don't think that it was like a Jack and Diane kind of thing of, you know, like the the glory days are forever in the past. Um, I, I, I don't know him that well, but I believe that he has has dealt with it okay. Who knows if this guy cries himself to sleep every night. I don't know. It's hard, but, man. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't, I have never taken the the walk you know i've never I haven't gone to the selection to go to the unit that jared's in but i i have a lot of friends that have and i can tell the emotional maturity of a lot of the guys that go based on how they deal with the defeat of finishing and not being selected or alternately you know failing at some point along the way um a lot of guys justify it and like it becomes like just this, this you know like constant harping thing mm -hmm. uh a lot of guys um it ruins them man they're just so used to winning at everything that the first thing they fail at they come back and they can't they were high performers before they went to this course they were told they weren't good enough to be in a better organization and they come back to their original organization and they like can't tie their shoes you know everything they do is wrong yeah just defeated some, well, and some guys just say, hey, man, uh, it was a great learning experience, which I think is what you're supposed to take away from it, right? It's like, this is a real gut check. This is a learning experience. You get to see a lot of things. We're teaching you things and to do, do things in a different way than you've done them historically. Uh, put some tools in your toolbox and move on. And, yeah. and I think that that experience should universally make those of us who are self-aware better. Like going somewhere where you see that all the other kids are better at baseball than you should make you work harder or alternately reevaluate how you see the rest of your life. Like I was going to be a professional baseball player, but I'm now looking at accounting. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I think it brings up the, the adage, you know, be humble or life will visit humbleness upon you. Bitch, sit down. Yeah. <laughs> and for, for everyone that that's true, kind of like, uh, you know, the Sopranos, man, the, the or was it the Sopranos? I don't know. The, you know that Bob Dylan song, like everybody's got to serve somebody. Yep. I think it was the Sopranos. But in any event, um, I think that 
at the end of the day, really, as long as you're focusing on, you know, making yourself better than you were yesterday, um, looking ahead, I want to be better next week than I am today. And it doesn't, you know, not doing it because you're, you're motivated by being better than like the other guy. Um, Acceptance is, is powerful, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, pretty legitimately, I, the, this last deployment's a prime example, like accepting that you're not as cool as you think you are and that the mission that you're on isn't, isn't, is not as, you know, crucial as you want it to be, you know, like you're not actively engaging in something that you view as productive and making the most of it despite all that is, I mean, that's a challenge. Yeah. I, I mean, life in general summed up in a nutshell. It's all about challenge and learning from failure. I mean, I think, you know, we both have little kids and I think that, Oh yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, especially as a new parent, I think, or, you know, with with a first child, it's much easier to, or at least for me, I had to kind of catch myself really consciously allowing the, you know, my son to like fail at things. And it, I mean, we're talking about like minor things, right? Um, but you want to be there and be supportive and, and help them. But being supportive and helping them sometimes means letting them figure shit out on their own. And that comes for, for us as adults as well. I think we learn more from failure than we do from success. Um, I think we've done a very good job of reiterating that in all of our written content. <laughs> like, check out all the things I've fucked up. And I mean, my life's not on fire all the time. <laughs> right. All the time. Yeah. Being, being the key word there. Sometimes my life is definitely on fire, which is... You know, I, another got to accept it, right? Like just because it's on fire doesn't mean you want to pour gasoline on it. Maybe you just need the. Yeah. If you're going to take risk, you're going to have to accept failure at some point in time. I mean, you can only roll the odds dice so long, no matter what the odds are. Yep. Before, you know, you, you come up on failure. And the and juice is, oh, I mean, the ju is the juice worth the squeeze, right? I think so many people are timid about making big life changes. Like they're, they're not happy where they are. And they're just like, well, I guess I'm more okay with being unhappy in this situation than I would be taking a chance and being unhappy in a situation I don't know yet. Oh, yeah. Well, the fear of the unknown is always totally overestimated in my opinion, for, for at least most people. Yeah. Um, and I, I've been there as well. I think that it's, we're so much more willing to accept the devil that we know than even take a chance with the devil that we don't know. We are all and, that cartoon dog in a burning house saying, this is fine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey man, I know I was so excited to leave my last job and it was a hundred and ten percent convinced about about it, and probably a month before I left, and I knew you know my contract was running out. I knew you know basically a year before I left, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore, running out of contract, etc. And maybe like a month to three weeks beforehand, you know, I, I definitely looking at that, the light at the end of the tunnel had become a giant giant circle instead of a little pinhole, and yeah, it was kind of like fuck, man, like. I, you know, I, I had these slightly nagging second thoughts in the back of my head and I really had to sit there and think, is this like, am I fucking this up? Am I making a wrong decision? Um, 
And fortunately, you know, I was able to kind of like sit down and just take a deep breath and kind of think through it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to walk into a new situation where you have to figure things out and, and not be a little bit nervous about it. I think most people would be, would be lying if they said they weren't. Um, either that or goes back to the whole, you know, sociopathic. Are you, are you tone deaf? Do you not understand what you're doing at all? Do you feel okay in all situations? Like exactly, uh, just the kind of guy we're looking for. Right. (laughs) So anyway, I'm, uh, I don't know. I feel like we've kind of really, we wandered some today, wandered off a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's good because I was not, um, I wasn't looking forward to having to tell all the stories about how Iraq is the same as it was in 2000 eight as well, where it's like, you know, um, murder for hire, like every, every Iraqi is willing to do anything it takes to get a U.S. driver's license. Um, those are great stories, but I mean, maybe they shouldn't be told in a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe next time. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're back, man. It's good to to have you back in the, back in the office. I'm glad to be back. Now you, we can go back to receiving all of the scathing emails about like, what does Doug actually do at the company? Why do you guys pay him to be there? (laughs) <laughs> well, now that now that we've segregated you away from customer service, everything seems to be going so much smoother. Whatever, man. Those guys talk about. Hey, uh, wait. I'm not supposed to talk about this at all, am I? Let's just say I, I don't know what you're going to talk if you about. Send, so. If you send petty emails to customer service and I see them, you're going to receive a petty response. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hand it to uh, Patty and Ashley, our two customer service ladies, women. I don't know if ladies is an what appropriate is it? term. You, the, a, the way you said it was creepy, and B, I well, don't think it's exciting. It. Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, you make me sound like a strip club you DJ. You sounded like a strip club DJ when you said it. All right, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this. Like, um, I our two it, customer service ladies. I want to hand it to our two customer <laughs> service ladies. <laughs> Ashley, to the main stage. Um, no, I'm saying they deal with a lot of shit from people that is either annoying or outright mean. I just love the fact that like our, like Ashley and my gut reaction to customer service complaints is the same, but Ashley has the self-restraint to not say what's on her mind. So when I jump in and say what's on my mind, Ashley's not mad at me for ruining the relationship with the customer. She's mad at me because I said what she wanted to say. <laughs> She's like, why can't I just get on there and say, I was like, because well, you're the customer service person. She's very good at her job. Oh, she's awesome, man. I, I swear to God, half the emails that come in, I'm like, the fuck is wrong with this person? What do they think? Right? Like, like, um, I ordered a package. I, I ordered, uh, some supplements four weeks and two days ago, and I had them shipped to my APO. Typically, it takes four weeks for them to show up to my military post office. Um, it's not here. What's the problem? Can you give me a full refund for a future order? And I'm like, no, you can't. Go smoke yourself until I'm tired. Like, yeah, like very I, respectfully. I Doug. do have a little bit of a rant. I don't understand how many people in the military don't seem to understand like the APO FPO system. You, you mean that, that it's, it's a not, giant black hole and it, things well, disappear into it? It's also not part of the post, you know, Hey, like my tracking information doesn't work anymore. I know once it gets dropped off in at Chicago, the, at, like at the APO, 
it doesn't track through whatever military shipping system or base that it's at before because it gets it's in, to you. Now you have privates in charge of your mail. There's like some angry E2 who sucked at their first job, so they were put in the post office like to work distributing mail, and they're super mad. And you can totally expect them to put the right package in the right place every time. The only time that uh, I was really, really impressed with a FPO, APO customer service email was a dude who sent us a picture. He's like, I ordered a bunch of supplements from you guys. The box came. And when I opened it, this is what I found. <laughs> and it was clearly the box had been like retaped a bunch of times with, you know, not packing tape. Yeah. Because we use that water activated craft tape yep. shit. And it was just layers and layers upon clear packing tape. And the whole box he had ordered just a bunch smushed. of supplements. No, no, the whole box was just books. So it's like someone <laughs> someone had opened that shit up and been like, oh, I'll take this protein and I'm just going to fill this box with like Harry, books. Harry Potter books. <laughs> Here you go. I was like, you know what? That shit isn't our fault, but we're going to fucking get you back on this one. Um, and we try not to fuck people over that are getting stuff shipped. We realize that stuff gets lost. And when it's legitimately lost, we really try and do our best to, you know, to make up for that, even though it's it's not really our obligation or fault. Um, however, the complaints about the speed at which stuff is arriving to people who are deployed is continues to boggle my mind. Like I can't do anything to get you your package faster. I didn't realize in Iraq. I was while I was in Iraq, I was super annoyed because I saw all these emails coming in from people that were like, um, I got a delivery notification, but my package isn't there. I'm like, and how is this our problem? So I like, posted something about it in the team room and I learned <laughs> that apparently when when something is shipped from a vendor like ourselves and it is not delivered, like it isn't received by the customer. Mm -hmm. The customer has to complain to the vendor first yeah, yeah. for the no, sake it's the of shipper's responsibility. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. So, so I was like, why are we getting all these emails? I can't go to your house and like shake down your neighbors who clearly stole your package. Yeah. But then I realized I'm, I was the asshole. I'm not upset about that stuff. No, no, obviously I'm not anymore either. At the time though, I was like, this is totally unreasonable. Why are all these idiots emailing us? And then I was like, oh, I am the idiot. My bad. And that is the continued path of self-improvement and discovery. <laughs> yeah, as, as I rage and throw things and punch holes in walls, and then I'm like, ah, oh, I am mad about something that is my fault. Right. My bad. It's all good. Well, I'm glad you're back. I feel like you've been uh, stuck in pit lane for the last six months, Ugh. and now we're back out on the track. Oh, yeah. So good things to come. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. We appreciate you listening. Coming at you live from Softly HQ. We will see you next week.